Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Father, this morning we come to a text that's hard and challenging, and we're asking that you would reveal yourself to us clearly through your word, for our benefit, but ultimately for your glory and your praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Suffering, poverty, wickedness, darkness. Sadly... It is of no surprise to the modern human what wickedness can do. We watch the news idly as another report of evil scrolls across the screen. We scroll through social media searching for the next hit of entertainment or gossip to distract us from our own chaos. Estimates suggest that over 120,000 people die from drug abuse every year. Over 160,000 from alcohol abuse. Over 400,000 people murdered. And over 750,000 people per year take their own life. Darkness exists. For many of you sitting here, you hear these words and the weightiness doesn't fully kick in. We've become so accustomed to living amongst the darkness that we often lose sight of any hope that continues to prevail. We lose motivation to make change, to go the extra mile, to live differently. In the midst of the darkness around us, Where do we turn? If you get nothing else out of today, I want you to grab hold of this statement that we're going to see come to life in God's word today in Genesis chapter four through six. And it's this. God will always prevail over darkness. God will always prevail. Over darkness. Now, Adam and Eve experienced the first of the darkness when they chose to walk in disobedience to God. We talked about that last week in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Now, separated from paradise they once lived in, alongside of God, they labor together to live. God's grace is shown to them in that He spares their lives while also promising in Genesis 3.15 that He will, through the woman's offspring, bring about hope and redemption. God will always prevail over the darkness. So now I want you to picture with me Adam and Eve driven from the garden into the world around them 
the land now being cursed by which they have to work in order to provide for themselves, now having for the first time the exposure of sin and the reality of who they are, once walking in perfect fellowship with God, now standing in separation from God because of their disobedience, they strive to live on. And this is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Now pause for a minute. I want you to think about this in light of the promise that God had given to Eve specifically previously. That God specifically said that there would be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent who deceived. So put yourself in the shoes of Adam and Eve at this moment, knowing what the promises of God said. That now they have two sons of which they can look at and go, God will be faithful to his promises. In that moment, we can imagine there's a hope that springs up because now, up until this point, this idea would have been foreign. And now in that moment, God's faithful promise brought to life through these sons. But it doesn't take long in the course of time for things to change. Look at verse 3. In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, simply put, here's aspect of God's character and who he is that I want you to grab hold of in this. God's warnings ring true. Now, we can speculate. We don't really know why is it that God accepted the offering of Abel, but the offering of Cain, he did not. doesn't give us specific details. One of the things we can point to is we can go, well, it specifically identifies that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flocks. The fat portions. In other words, it becomes clear Abel brought the best of what he had and committed that first to the Lord. Whereas Cain, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. doesn't give this specific about the first fruits, the best of it. At the end of the day, what we do know is there was a heart problem that existed. How can we tell that? Well, God specifically confronts Cain and he says, Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? This evens the playing field, church family. There is no one who holds a better chance of standing in righteousness before God than another person. God has made the way the same. 
This is what the very truth that unites us together is the church. That regardless of your background or where you've come from or what you've been through, you have the ability to be united together with one another through Jesus. And that opportunity is available to all. And yet the warning rings true. If you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You must choose. If our priorities become skewed from walking in obedience to the Lord, from worshiping and pursuing Him as our greatest aim, then we will in turn shift to serve the God of our flesh. God clarifies, you have the ability to rule over sin. You have the ability to choose whether you walk in sin or walk in righteousness. And once again, just as redemption is available for all, conquering over sin is available to all. How many times do we encounter someone and we share stories and that person may say something like, you just don't understand what I've been through. You just don't get it. It's it's so much harder for me. Now, while I won't deny the fact that each one of us shares a different story, some of you may have experienced for sure difficulty that others have not. And yet God clarifies a warning that is the same. You either choose to walk in righteousness or you choose to walk in sin. You have the ability to choose. Now what happens after this warning, if you're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, you know what's coming. In verse 8, it says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And then when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Once again, man has the opportunity to be honest. And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what you have done, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, not only is God clear in his warnings, but we see in specifically verse 10 that God's justice is perfect. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's a powerful truth when Abel or when Cain does not admit what he has done, that the Lord says, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is a place of great hope, church, in the midst of tragedy. And the reason this is a place of great hope is because how often do we look at the atrocities committed? Maybe you're sitting here and one of those atrocities has happened to you. And it's gone undealt with from your perspective. Something's taken place under the surface, a wrong committed. And from your angle, you go, this person's off scot-free. 
The truth that we find in the midst of this story, in the midst of this tragedy, is that nothing is hidden from the sight of our God. Nothing is disguised. And the very unjust shed blood of Abel cries out to God to where Cain cannot hide from what he has done. And this declares something we see throughout Scripture, that God is a God of perfect justice. The voice of the oppressed will not be silenced. Those who have had atrocities committed to them in darkness, those who may be prone to believe the lie that there is no hope for justice, you need to recognize that God hears the cry of your heart and will bring about justice for you. But it will be His way, not yours. It will be done in His timing, not yours. And we have to ask, where is our faith rooted? It must be rooted in the God who will always prevail over darkness. Now, in the midst of this, God pronounces a curse on Cain for what he has done. Cursed from the ground, this is verse 11, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Now, verse 13, I honestly, I laugh every time I read this because I just picture a whining child where Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And I read that and I go, really? Really? After what you've done? That you're, you're conversing with the perfect, all-powerful God, and your comment is, uh, this is too much. How often do we do that? Or we shift blame like Adam and Eve. And the reason he gives is, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. It's too much for me to bear, God. I can't bear this weight of punishment you're ushering in on me. If you're a parent, I'm sure you've encountered that with your children before. Oh, it's too much to bear. And yet, what is really right? What is right punishment for this? Here we see another moment of hope that God will always prevail over darkness. It's this statement. God's grace. Everyone say grace. God's grace is greater than our sin. Look at verse 15, what the Lord says. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Wow. How? Is it possible that God could do this? His mercy and His grace abound in the midst of sin. In the same way that you don't get to determine what perfect justice looks like, you don't get to tell God who He can love. Here we see God's gracious, merciful character highlighted among the absolute atrocity he has just, that has just been committed. It seems almost laughable 
that Cain would see this as too severe, highlighting the absolute depravity of his soul, failing to recognize even the mercy of God in not killing him on the spot. Because as Romans says, the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. When I talk about this with other people, I use the illustration of a father towards his children. And what I mean by that is our kids do some crazy things in their life. And if you sat together and you shared stories about the the mountains and the deep valleys that you've encountered together at different phases of your parenting journey, or as even a child, for those of you who don't uh, have children of your own, you are a child and you've experienced the highs and lows of that journey. And yet in the midst of that, as a father, there is nothing that my child could do that would determine whether or not I choose to love them. In other words, my kids don't get to tell me whether or not I love them. That's my decision. In the same way, there is no one on this earth that gets to tell God who He does or doesn't love. And in fact, what Scripture and the Gospel reveals is that God so loved the world that He gave His Son that you could have life eternal with Him. We don't get to stand back and go, God, how could you possibly love that person without also turning around and saying, God, how could you possibly love me? God's grace is greater than our sin. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, Cain departs at this point and he builds a life for himself. He builds a city and names it after his son Enoch. And his lineage makes incredible technological advances. Livestock herding in verse 20, musicians in verse 21, forgers in verse 22. They were skilled in their trades and brought about so many advances in civilization that you and I still have the byproduct of today. But one has to wonder, did Cain learn from his sin? What was passed down to his family? And unfortunately, we continue to see the turning away of man from God. In verse 23 and 24, we have what's known as the Song of Lamech, and it just should make you cringe. Lamech, in biblical account, is the first one to move away from God's design of marriage for one man and one woman as he began with Adam and Eve in the garden and takes two wives. If you read through Scripture and you think that God is somehow uh, advocating or okay with people having more than one wife, you are sorely mistaken. Just because the Bible reports that what people, that's what people did does not mean that somehow it was okay. But Lamech says to his wives here, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. At this point in the narrative, we have the pinnacle of wickedness. Lamech boasts about the measure of his evil in comparison to his relative Cain. He boasts about having murdered another one for wounding him. He boasts about even contorting God's grace. And what's really interesting about this, you can make a note of this next to verse 24 in your Bible. When we think about Lamech bragging about how he takes vengeance upon a man, he uses a turn of, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And in Matthew eighteen twenty-one, we hear Jesus say in response to Peter, how many times must I forgive one who sins against me? And Jesus goes, not seven, but seventy-seven times. Powerful connection back over to Jesus' teaching of forgiveness rather than revenge. That's in Matthew 18, 21. In the midst of this, we have to wonder what's next. In the midst of wickedness, having taken over in a sense and grab hold of this as we look at verses 25 and 26, God's redemptive plan will prevail. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For he, she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What a stark contrast between Cain's lineage and Seth's that people in Seth's line at this point began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now chapter 5 goes through and it details the lineage of Adam all the way from Adam through Seth to Noah. And next week we're going to talk really more specifically about Noah and unpack that from a theological perspective and the significance of that. So I want you to come prepared for that. But in all reality, when we get to the end of chapter 4, things are looking up. We go back to the promise in Genesis 3 and we go, Whoa, yes, finally, people are calling on the name of the Lord. God has promised. There's hope in the midst of darkness. There's hope in this. God will. He will prevail. From our vantage point, we should get excited when we read that. If we're following the narrative. Enoch in chapter 5 the son of Adam through Seth in uh, verses 23 and 24. Thus were the days of Enoch. 365 years Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Wow. Amazing. Enoch lived in such a righteous way that he didn't even die. God took him from the earth. Stark contrast. God's redemptive plan really does prevail. 
And then we come to chapter 6. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, this happens to be one of the most hotly debated passages in the entirety of the book of Genesis. Uh, Who are the sons of God here? What are the Nephilim or the giants as it speaks of? What was the 120 years really referring to? And I want to welcome you to ask those questions and to even like, let's get together. Let's wrestle with these things together. But I also want you to realize that Moses, when he's recording uh, these words, he's giving an overview and a highlight saying this is what has happened from the point of Adam all the way to this place. This is what has taken place and these things happened and there is at the heart of this one main concept that if we allow ourselves to get stuck in the weeds, we will become distracted by and it is this in verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Darkness prevails, but God will always prevail over darkness. God having given dominion over the earth to mankind, having warned man that sin crouched at the door, that they must rule over it, man chose to allow sin to rule over them. Darkness, God's creation, was encompassed by sin. Verse 7 of chapter 6, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And verse 8 brings a glimmer of hope, but, God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, some people struggle here because it uh, gives weight to this reality that God says, I regret that I have created man. I regret, I'm sorry that this has become the state of things. And if we're thinking about this critically, we go, how can God, who's sovereign and all-knowing and encompasses all things, how can he regret something that he brought to be? How, how, can, how is that possible? And we must not take and apply our own uh, human methodology to who God is. Because God in this record of what God is really even feeling, 
It is not negating the fact that he is God. It's not undermining God's sovereignty or his redemptive plan because God always prevails over darkness. Rather, what you see here is that God is not some absentee figure who is looking down on the earth and going, well, that's a mess. Wonder who did that. Rather, we serve a God who intimately knows the details and responds with a heart that says, I long for my children, my create, those created in my image to experience life and fellowship with me. And it hurts to the deepest part of who he is to see the darkness overtake that which he created as good. And so God, in His grace and His mercy, seeks to cleanse the created world from the darkness that man has allowed to creep in. God is not finished yet. You realize that Scripture could have stopped here, right? God, in His infinite wisdom, could have gone, well, that was a train wreck. We're going to wipe everything out and create the world without these people who are prone to bring sin and darkness back into it again. No more. But he doesn't do that. And in fact, what you see is, is what you will see as we go through the rest of Genesis is you're going to see this cycle take place where God brings into light. He creates or implements shift and then man sins and transgresses against a holy God. And then God continues to bring about redemption. One has to wonder at this point when God will say enough is enough. But I, what I want you to think about is the implications of that. God will always, everyone say always. God will always prevail over darkness. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He will always prevail over darkness. Here's the hard truth. The one who walks in darkness is separated from God. God will always prevail over the darkness. In fact, John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It goes on and he says... uh, This light shines in the darkness, and what? The darkness shall not overcome it. If you read the whole of Scripture and you end up at the end of Revelation, you find out that the darkness indeed will not overcome it. God will prevail over darkness. The darkness that you see in this day and age, church family, the oppression, the the atrocities committed in this time as you watch the news and you see all that's going on. If you are in Christ, you have to cling to this hope that God will always prevail over darkness. And what do I do in response to that? I have to fix my eyes on the one who will prevail. 
I have to stop allowing my life to be motivated and pushed forward by everything I see around me and rather fix my eyes on the one who is steady. Multiple times this last week as I sat with people who were in the, some of the hardest seasons of life and I was taken back to this image, really an experience I had. How many of you, how many of you have ever been deep sea fishing? A few of you? Okay. Um, how many of you have ever been seasick out on the ocean? Okay, I'm not alone. I went one time in Oregon. And it was the most expensive nap I've ever had to take. <laughs> I was so sick. And it really wasn't even that rough. It would just, it throws you off. Right? And if, if some of you have experienced really turbulent seas, you've really experienced that. Like, whoa, okay. Isn't that what life feels like sometimes? Whoa, okay, I'm trying to hold on to some, but it's moving too, and I, I just can't get my bearings. And I'm stumbling all over, I'm sick to my stomach. I'm, oh. and you know, one of the most simple ways that they would tell you to cope with seasickness is to fix your eyes on the horizon at a set point that's not moving. Find land or something that's steady and focus in on that so your body gets its bearings. Now, obviously, this illustration falls apart because I tried that and it did not work. Okay? But at the end of the day, here's what I want you to grab hold of. In the turbulent seas that we face in our culture, in our community, in your family, in your relationships, in your job, you fill in the blank. Your task is to fix your eyes on the one who is steady. Psalm 46 says, our rock, our fortress, we will not be greatly shaken. Why? Because if we fix our eyes on the one who is steady, we cling to the one who will prevail over the darkness. But you have to answer the question, do you walk in the light as he is in the light, or do you walk in darkness? There's no middle ground. 1 John chapter 1 says this, This is the message we have heard from you and proclaimed to you, that God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's really that simple, church. And to recognize, step back and realize God has not called you to nice. He's called you to new. Whether you are a nice person or not means nothing before God in eternity. Whether you are new in Christ does. And you must make a choice. Cain made a choice to walk in his flesh. And the generations that flowed from that brought further sin and brokenness and animosity on the world. You have a choice to make. Now, in the light of this, this is where 
I want us to transition to communion because this is where this comes in, church. At the end of the day, this is why communion is meant for those who are seeking to walk in the light, not those who walk in darkness. And here's the, here's the reality, church. We take communion to remember what God in Christ has done on our behalf. In other words, we take communion in order to remind ourselves and each other that God prevails. And He has made a way through Jesus for us to prevail. But it's only through Jesus. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Because you and I are prone to forget. And we're prone to do it on our own. We're prone to do it our way. Scripture says that too. And so before we take this, I just want us to pause. Because in light of this, as we're talking about this, you may have realized there's aspects of my life where I'm walking in darkness. And maybe you have never made a decision to actually genuinely follow Jesus. And that's where you need to sit today. Is to answer the question, will I choose to surrender to Christ? Or I will, will I continue to surrender to my fleshly desires and my worldly way of living? You must choose. No one, I can't make that decision for you. Nobody else sitting next to you can make that decision for you. You have to make that decision. And if you are here today and you have breath in your lungs or you're listening online, God has been patient with you because you are still here. But you are not promised tomorrow. You have to choose. And someone may go, well, how do I choose? You choose. The same way that you choose where you're going to go eat after lunch today. But I'm going to tell you, this is profoundly more important. I hope it's way more important to you. Will you choose to follow Jesus? Or will you choose to stay in your flesh? Your family, my greatest fear, my greatest fear, I was talking with some brothers in Christ about this this morning. My greatest fear is that you would spend your life coming to church and going through the motions, having never truly chosen to follow Jesus. I don't want that. And choosing to follow Jesus isn't a Sunday thing. It's an everyday thing. And it's a humbling thing because it means you have to willingly take yourself out of the driver's seat and say, I can't do this. I cannot drive my own life. And so I'm going to surrender it to you. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you have to be reborn. Remade. Renewed. And if you aren't sure how that takes place or how to go about doing that or beginning to walk and live in that way, after we get all done today, I want you to come talk with me. 
I don't care how long it takes. I want you to know that you can make that decision today. But it has to be your decision. So let's pause, because for those of you who have made that decision, we need to remind ourselves that we serve a God who will prevail over darkness. But may we pursue to not walk in darkness like the rest of the world. May we not be part of that. And to pause and reflect and confess sin before God, this should be a regular practice for us. To realign ourselves, to remind ourselves what God in Christ has done for us. Let's pause and then we're going to take communion together at the same time, united under what Christ has done for us. Okay, let's pause. Father, we are a broken people who are prone to walk in our own sin and to fall back into a pattern of fleshly sinfulness that goes against what you have called us to in Christ. God, we confess that it is far easier for us to go about things our own way than to root further into who you are and what you've called us to. It's far easier to walk in the way of the world than it is to walk in obedience to your word. Father, in this moment, may you bring to mind those areas that we've chosen to walk in the darkness and recognize that those things prevent us from walking in the light with you. God, we give you praise that you've given us forgiveness and cleansing in the name of Jesus. We know that we will account for the things that we do in this earthly body. Lord, we also hold fast to the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Fathers, we reflect upon these truths. May you convict and challenge us, but may you also encourage us and lift our weary heads to fix our eyes on you, our sure and steady anchor in the midst of the storm. Father, unite us and build us as your church for your glory, not our own. I pray in Jesus' name.